Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. As we uh, get started here, this is a completely different ICC event, so we're just going to have fun. So I want to just welcome everybody that's brand new to the Institute. This is not normal. You got to bear with me because, you know, it's Pascha and we're here to celebrate. We want to celebrate together. So number one, I encourage you to go pour yourself a glass of wine and have a Bible. Those are the two required things tonight. Glass of wine and a Bible, but also, you know, we fast together and we feast together, right? We were talking about this at the at the uh, at the Tuesday last Tuesday talk or whatever that was on feasting. Then we got to learn how to be a, a feasting people again, and uh, and we have to have this interaction and learn to live together again and get comfortable with all of that. So, this is what we're doing tonight. Because the Institute of Catholic Culture, by the way, is not the Institute for Catholic Culture. It's the Institute of Catholic Culture, which means we should be living out our faith, okay? Those that are new to the Institute, I am the founding director of the Institute, Father Hezekiah, and I'm a married priest. I have seven children. I'm a Melkite, Greek Catholic. I think we've got this um, for everybody, which is the Regina Chaley, as our opening prayer, okay? We're going to pray together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Regina Celi, Letare, Alleluia. Quian Vemeruisti Portare, Alleluia. Resurrexi, Sicur Dixi, Alleluia. Ora pro nobis Deum. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Today is very important because I've said so many times that uh, the context, context, context. Okay, Context is so important to us and that we approach the scriptures in the right way. So make sure you get your Bible out. For those new to the Institute, get a real Bible, you know. Now, doing good study of the scriptures is important and make sure we have the right principles in place. I'm going to talk about a couple of those principles real quick, and then we're going to move on. And the first one is from your catechism. So if you have your catechism like, sitting next to you as a prince, uh, you know, always have that near you, then that's great. Um, but otherwise, I'm just going to read you two paragraphs, paragraph 115 and 116. We'll link it in our post-event study uh, email. Oh, we have it here. According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and spiritual, the latter being subdivided into allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. Now, that's all fancy words. Stop for a second. Stop reading. Stop reading. The only thing this is saying, there's two senses of Scripture, the literal, historical, and 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 then a spiritual sense. And that spiritual sense has like 
you know, the moral meaning of it, a, a typological, like foreshadowing meaning of it, somewhere like that, kind of like the spiritual interpretation of the text, which is extremely important. But as this catechism quote goes on to say, I'm going to finish reading it here, Melanie, so we've got to bring it back up. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness in the living reading of the scripture in the church. The literal sense, and here's the key, the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis. That's like by, you know, interpreting the text, following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred scripture are based on the literal. Now, bring this down for a second. Okay. It's so important, you guys. So many people read the Bible and try to draw a moral application for their life. This is an abuse of scripture, and it's, it's kind of like committing uh, uh, intellectual suicide. Okay? The first thing you have to do is ascertain the literal historical meaning of the text. It's not meaning being literalistic, it, meaning that every single thing that is said is exactly met that way. But, but, like, you know, you hear this from some people. And they're like this. No, it's trying to discover what the author intended his audience to receive. You see? Okay, it's so important. If I'm writing a letter and I talk about the golden hills that I see, well, you have to know whether what you're reading the letter. You have to know I'm in California, and it's about this time of year that the sun, the the, the rain has stopped, and now the hills are just like golden wheat. Okay, but if you're if you don't know that, you know, I'm in Virginia, and you're thinking I'm talking about fall, right? But I'm not. It's so important. All right, so we have to ascertain the literal historical meaning of the text. Okay, which is why we're doing this study. Someone accused me one time of tell, doing like a travel log, the Jesus travel log. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm doing the Jesus travel log because I have to do the Jesus travel log because you don't know the Jesus travel log. Unless you know the Jesus travel log, you're not going to be able to find out what Jesus wants you to learn in the spiritual application of the text. Yes. All right. We need to know where he went and what he did. And that's what we're going to be doing together. I have this great quote for you from a commentary on the Gospel of Luke. I'm not going to tell you the guy's name because it's so it's, it's it's some German guy and I can't pronounce it, but it was a really great insight that I got like 20 years ago and I've held on to it. Listen to this. Commentary on Luke. So the author is speaking about Luke, but it, this, this quote is applicable to all of the Gospel writers. In writing these things in the way they did, It is their intention that we too, their readers, see what has taken place, so that our hearts too will be converted. They intend to get their reader fully involved in the mystery of Christ which they present. They want us to see what the centurion saw, what the crowds who were moved to beat their breasts saw. They want us to be present with the women who saw the tomb and how his body was laid when Jesus was buried. They want us to be with these women on the morning of of his resurrection when they see the empty tomb and then in faith see the risen one. They want us to see the Lord in the breaking of the bread with the disciples in Emmaus, and their eyes were open and they they recognized him. They want us to be there looking on with faith when Jesus says to the disciples, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. I'm going to go on. They they, they want us to be able to to taste the, 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 the fish that he was grilling on the charcoal fire. You see what I'm saying? They want us to jump into the Sea of Galilee with Peter and swim around in there. And that kind of creates that context by which we can start to see the Lord. You know, every time I go to that place where Peter jumped off the boat and went swimming to the shore, there's a big sign that 
This is no swimming. I have to wait till the guards are all gone. Then I take off my cassock and I jump in the water and I swim as far as I can before the monk comes out yelling at me. And then when that happens, I turn around and I look at the shore because that is exactly what Peter saw. Swimming in the water, looking at the shore, he saw Jesus. And I want to see what Peter saw and what made him swim to that shore. Okay. Our goal um, is to understand where he went. And when and to whom he appeared is a way to stand within the story and see ourselves in the story and allow the Lord then to appear to us and to speak with us. A final introductory note, there are apparent differences in accounts, but we need to realize that there are a number of ways in which Jesus reveals himself after the resurrection, and they are not bound to time and space. They're not bound to our limited capacity to to understand. The stone rolled away, the breaking of the bread, uh, on the road to Emmaus, the angels appearing, uh, guarding the tomb, uh, of course, the appearance of the Lord. These are all appearances. These are all revelations of the truth that he has risen from the dead. Okay? Uh, in in, In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus first appears to the women after their visit to the tomb. And in Mark, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. In Luke... The women go tell the apostles, and Peter runs to the tomb. Okay, then he appears on the road to Emmaus, and he eats with the twelve. And John, he first appears to Mary Magdalene, but there's an there's an ancient tradition that he actually appeared to the mother of God first, before all of these, to console her tears, and to tell her that he was risen from the dead. In First Corinthians chapter fifteen, I got to grab a book real quick. In First Corinthians chapter fifteen. St. Paul tells probably the most ancient of the pieces. You can turn there. Martin wants to turn there. Why not? Turn to, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 real quick. Chapter 15. Look at this from verse, starting with verse, uh, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Are you, are you guys all with me? Yes? You got to turn there? Chapter 15, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Now, I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand by which you were saved, if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared first to Cephas. Now, Cephas there is the Greek transliteration of the name Kepha, okay, which means rock, from which we get the name Peter. Okay, He appeared first to Peter. Then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brethren. At one, I bet you guys didn't know that. 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive. You see that? Okay. And then, uh, and then he goes on, he appeared to James and so forth. When he comes back to Jerusalem, we're going to look at all that. But there's an account, right? Now, all these details can become very confusing. And this is the reason why we want to study this, to get a straight, uh, to get straight a better sense to hear and understand and enter into the mystery of the resurrection. Now, I want to share with you a quotation from uh, a f- Father Bargel Pixner, wonderful uh, archaeologist that lived in the Holy Land. He's got a couple of great books. We'll send the links to you. Um, he says this. Now, uh, pay attention about these resurrection appearances that apparently contradict one another at a first-glance reading. This is what he says. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Out of this reality, the case of Jesus continued. 
Out of this, the church lives. Since the resurrection and apparitions of Jesus represent the historical, mystical experience of a completely new and very different spiritual reality, they belong to a category that is beyond a purely human grasp. We might say they belong to the sphere of a fifth dimension, which is beyond the reaches of our limited human capacity. As, as we are only able to perceive four dimensions, three dimensions of space, and then in addition time. The reports of the witnesses as presented by the different evangelists are therefore not easy to arrange, neither factually nor chronologically. Okay, Because when Jesus rises from the dead, he enters our human nature into the eternal day of the Lord. He appears to two people at once. He transcends what would take us days, weeks to, to walk. He's able to do in an instant or beyond an instant, right? Because it's not just, it's not an instance of time, right? But no, beyond time. So, so the, the try, trying to ascertain the exact historical account of what took place is, is difficult. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we are given biblical revelation to allow our minds to enter in. And that's exactly what we're going to do. The apparent discrepancies are resolved if we remember that one of the most important first steps of good exegesis is to gain the intention of the author, right? That literal historical uh, um, uh, uh, in interpretation. The intention of the author and the audience to whom he's writing. And, and 1 Corinthians is a good example of this. St. Paul is writing to the Corinthian community in the context in the Corinthian community of a very pagan culture. And the pagan cultures didn't respect women. And so in his account of who Jesus appeared to, he does not mention the women because they weren't considered trustworthy, authoritative uh, uh, examples, you see. He only mentions the men. And I'll stop for a second, by the way, a little hobby horse here, against modern society that would say that the church oppresses women. This is an absolute lie and never fall into it. It is the church, the Christians, who actually elevated women to their proper place as being different but equal to men. Because the entire pagan world did not have this concept. It was only the Christians that introduced it. So to say that the Christians are the ones who oppress women is to turn the truth on its head, which is exactly the fingerprint, the guarantor of the evil one, to turn the truth on its head. Okay, now, with this understanding, then we can begin to reconcile the account as Pixner teaches us as best we can in our limited capacity to understand, even though we are attempting to grasp something beyond the dimensions which we as human beings can completely grasp. The basic storyline is this. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. I'm going to do them fast. Okay. The basic storyline is this, that after the Sabbath was over, huh, Passover, the Sabbath was over, women go to the tomb early. John tells us before the sun had risen, it was still dark. And they see the stone rolled back. They also see angels or an angel. And seeing the angel, they run to tell the apostles on the way back, some of the women see Christ. I say some of the women see Christ, who tell them to tell the apostles to go to Galilee, where he will meet them. Okay? Peter and John then run to the tomb, and they find it empty. Mary Magdalene stays at the tomb, 
and the one who persevered is the one who sees the Lord. Peter also sees Christ while returning from the tomb. Two disciples then see him in the evening of that first Pascha, Easter, uh, on the road to Emmaus. See, they see Christ, and then they stop their journey, and they turn back, and they head back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles. Christ then appears to ten of the apostles. Thomas was not with them, and he says, peace be with you. And he breathes on them, and he eats with them. Eight days later, the following Sunday, he appears again to the apostles, this time with Thomas, and again says, peace be with you. The apostles go to Galilee then, to the mountain to which Jesus directed them to go. And Christ appears to the apostles on the sea when they go out fishing. Peter then jumps in the water. You know the story. And while in Galilee, apparently Jesus appears to five hundred people at one time. We're going to get into each one of these over the next couple of days together. They return to Jerusalem. He appears to James, the so-called brother of the Lord. We'll talk about why he appears to James. Then he meets with the 11 one more time and leads them up the Mount of Olives to the top, to the area called Bethany, from which he rode the donkey down on Palm Sunday. And there he ascends into heaven. Okay, so there's your basic timeline of his appearances. Now, don't turn this thing off like he just gave me the creme notes and I don't have to do the rest of it with me because we're going to go through each and every one of those appearances so that you understand them, what he did, what he said, and where he went next. Okay, now, you know, I've been beating you guys over the head long enough. Context, context, context. A text without a context is... No text at all. There you exactly. A text without a context is no text at all. So the first context I'm going to give you is the geography of uh, of Jerusalem. And we're going to rip through this because I'm like way late on my stuff here. It should be like 20 minutes earlier. Okay. Here you see the city of Jerusalem. Okay. And Millie's going to use her mouse to show us Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount was. There it is, Mount Moriah. That's the Temple Mount area the Kidron Valley, just to the east of it, and the Mount of Olives goes up that hillside off the Kidron Valley. That's right. And then we're going to come on the other side of the Temple Mount. You can see the Temple Mount, by the way, right? The square. Exactly. Now, we're going to come off to the southwestern hill. That southwestern hill is the high point. It's called Mount Sion. And up there on Mount Sion is where the upper room is. Okay? Now, we're going to head just up from the upper room, past the transversal valley, and to the right, this is where the tomb of Christ, where Golgotha is and the tomb of Christ. As you're going to see, these areas are very close to one another. See the valley of Hinnom at the bottom? That's, that's Gehenna, the valley of Gehenna. You've heard it, Gehenna is like hell, right? That's, that was where they threw their trash. And the Valley of Gehenna on one side of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley on the other, they come together, they merge, and they let out towards the Dead Sea, towards the Jordan Valley, okay, and dump out there. All right, here it has a little bit more on it for you. Again, the Temple Mount. Again, the Temple Mount with your mouse. And the Kidron Valley. And then the Mount of Olives, okay. And Gethsemane's down there. See Gethsemane down in the Kidron? There you go. 
Now we're going to come up to Mount Zion again, where the upper room is. It's also where the praetorium was, where Jesus was arrested and he was kept overnight there. Okay. Some of you have been there. And then we're going to come just up to the Holy Sepulchre. You see that? Okay. Now realize that when you're looking at this, you see that the walls of Jerusalem are, that the Holy Sepulchre is inside the walls of Jerusalem. These are later walls that originally were kept that where Jesus was crucified, crucified was of course outside the city walls, right outside the city gates. And so uh, you can, you can understand that. Go to the next slide. There you go. This is a good one. Okay. You see the temple Mount. Okay. You can see the, yeah, you can see the upper city, Mount Sinai where the upper room is. You can also see over here, the praetorium. Okay. And Herod's palace where Jesus is arrested. So you got just real quick, just to help you guys. He goes from the, from the upper room in the upper city, right? The, the, the upper room. He's going to head down to the Kidron Valley to, for his passion, right? For the garden, uh, Mount of Olives, right down in there. Yeah, exactly. Then they're going to arrest him, and they're going to take him right back up to where he was and throw him into jail. And then throughout the night, have all that business. And eventually, he's going to end up over there where Golgotha is. You see Golgotha? Right up just, and they've got both walls there, by the way, for you can see the old wall. See that? And then you have the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. See how close Golgotha and the tomb are? Golgotha, of course, is the place of the skull, which is the place of Adam's skull, because Jerusalem is believed to be the location of paradise. Right outside the walls of, of paradise, Adam died. And it's to that place that Jesus went so that his life-giving blood might drip upon the dead skull of the dead Adam and bring us all back to life. Okay, I hope that's a little bit helpful to you to kind of see that context it is from, from the, from the upper room, which is where the apostles were staying. And I maybe we this into Q and a a little bit, if anybody has any questions, but they're staying in the upper room in the Essene quarter. So when, when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, I've done it before. I went to the upper room and then I ran as fast as I could while I walked down to the tomb of Christ. And then I turned around, and I ran as fast as I could back. It took me about 20 minutes. I got lost like three times. Okay. So you know, if you're like the Hopkins, you probably could run this in about five minutes. But me, I was like, I got to the end of the first block and I was like out of breath. I couldn't run, you know. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's about a 15, 20 minute run and through the cities. And this is, what Ma- this is what Mary Magdalene did. Okay. So there you've got this context back and forth between the upper room and the tomb of Christ. The other thing I want you to know is how close Golgotha is to to, to the tomb. It's in the same church for those that have been there before. And we have to go back to the slides really fast because I want you to see a cross cut of the, of, of the, of the uh, it's very confusing when you go there, a cross cut of the church, okay? Because Golgotha and the tomb of Christ are like, I don't know, a couple hundred yards away from each other. Because Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion was up on a hill. There's Golgotha. And there's the tomb, okay, of, of Joseph of Arimathea. And the church that was built there by St. Constantine, which is, was much bigger than the current church, much bigger, covers both locations, okay? And you don't get this sense unless you realize when you're climbing up the stairs in the church to go up to Golgotha that you're actually climbing the original hill. And then you climb back down that hill and you go to the place where his body was laid, okay? And then you enter into the tomb. Okay. Um, is that helpful guys? Does that make sense to you? All right. The second context, so context, context, context. I'm only going to give you two, but 
nevertheless, you got the idea. Context, context tonight. A text without context, no text at all. The second context is a life of God's people. What's going on in Jerusalem, right? Now you know where you're standing, okay? What's going on in Jerusalem? We need to remember that Jesus chose this moment, and he chose this city, and he chose the Feast of Passover, that he might pass from death to life, okay? In the context then of the geography, which we just shared with you, and the festal cycle of the Jews, the calendar, which is represents really the life of the people, which it should represent for us. By the, that's what this whole series is about. Our liturgical calendar should be the schedule of our life. It should be the movements of our spiritual life from fasting to feasting. Okay. In that context, then we place the life in the work of Christ, his passion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sending of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. The first step to contextualize the resurrection in the life of the people is always to remember that Jesus chose the feast of Passover for his passing over from death to life. We do a big disservice to ourselves, I believe, to use the word Easter. Easter comes to us from from, uh, uh, the uh, Anglo-Saxon pagan world in which the time of the spring equinox was marked by the worship of the god Easter. And it's related to us by the venerable Bede, who lived in the 8th century. He says this, Easter, and he spells it, he's an E-O-S-T-U-R, but Easter month, which now, in, now interpreted as the Paschal month, okay, Passover, Pascha, Paschal, um, was formerly named after the goddess, Easter, the goddess Easter and has given its name to the festival. Do you see? So when you use the name Easter, we're using this name of, 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 this, of this pagan goddess. And I, I'm not, it's not the, I mean, look, it was the marking of the time of year. So I'm not saying that, that Christians that call Easter Easter are doing some sort of pagan worship. We'll be attacked for that, I'm sure. But don't worry about that. But the point is that use words that mean something to you, okay? This is Passover. This is what Passover is all about. So in the, in the Greek tradition called Pascha, it's the same name, Pascha, Passover. It means the same thing, okay? Passover begins, and this is important for us to, to, to know, and, and it's going to enter us now into the, the, really the heart of what I want to talk about in our final part here, okay? Passover begins another part of the Jewish festal cycle, and it's called the preparation for the Feast of Weeks, Weeks, W-E-E-K-S, the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was counted from the day after Passover, seven days times seven weeks. Coming up with a total of, come on my math people, 49 days. And after the 49th day, the 50th day was a great feast for the Jews called Pentecost. Cost, right? The 50th day, Pente, Pentecost. It was the feast of the Jews by which they commemorated 50 days after Passover when they left Egypt and made their way to Mount Sinai and at the base of Mount Sinai received the law of God, how they were going to live their lives, which is why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit upon the apostles that now the law will not be written on stone, but be written on our hearts. Okay, from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, you look it up. Okay. He's going to put a fleshy heart here that we might live out 
the law of God. All right. And that counting of those 50 days to Pentecost, the beginning of that counting was none other than the day of the resurrection, the day following Passover. It was the celebration on that first day. It was the celebration of the harvest of the first fruits. I will explain this in a moment. To prepare for this feast of first fruits, which began on that first day after Passover, after Pascha, or after Easter, if you will, the Jews would ceremonially go to the Mount of Olives, the same where Jesus was arrested and bound with cords. And on the very same day that they arrested Jesus, it was their festal practice to bind a sheaf of barley. You know, if you know, like, uh, Middle Eastern climate, or you know California, it's the same. The first thing that comes up in the spring is the wheat. It just come, takes off out of the ground, and the fields, are no, they're, not, they're not yellow yet. Right? They're just green, completely emerald green. And the first of the wheat to come up is the barley. They would take the barley and they would clump it into a clump and they would bind it in a similar manner that they bound Jesus. And they would cut off that barley and then they would prepare it to be brought to the temple. Remember, Passover is in the spring, right? This we just celebrated. So you got to understand this, that this barley was coming out of the ground and it was the first of the harvest, the first fruits, if you will. They'd bind that sheaf of barley, cut it down, bring it to the temple to be offered before the Lord as the first fruits of the harvest. It was a wave offering as a sacrificial offering dedicated, dedicating the entire harvest to God and thus beginning the counting to Pentecost 50 days later. And the sacrifice was obviously not like a blood sacrifice like we might think of in the Old Testament. There were various forms of sacrifice. Sacrifice is not a matter of death and destruction. Get that out of your mind. Sacrifice is a making holy, that is putting into communion with God the things of this world. That's what it is. My life primarily. Okay? It has nothing to do with death and destruction and everything to do with life. It was a way, a way by which they dedicated the, har- the entire harvest to God. And the sacrifice, I said, was obviously not a blood sacrifice. Rather, it was called a todah sacrifice. The word todah literally means thanksgiving. It was a thanksgiving sacrifice by which they would take wheat and they would wave it before the Lord like this, probably singing hymns and psalms to offer to God this gift of the first fruits. Okay? The word for thanksgiving in Greek is Eucharist. So it was literally called by the Jews the Eucharist sacrifice, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the Todah sacrifice. As one scholar explains this, on Passover, a marked sheaf of grain was bundled and left standing in the field. On the next day, the first day of unleavened bread, the sheaf was cut and prepared for the offering on the third day. On this third day, the priest waved the sheaf before the Lord, counting the days, then begins and continues until the day after the seventh Sabbath, the 50th day, which is called Pentecost. This means that we must place the resurrection on the day of the offering of the first fruits. Now, why is this important? Because the Jews at the time believed that when the Messiah did come, 
all sacrifices would cease in Jerusalem, except for the Todah sacrifice, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, or literally the Eucharistic sacrifice. It is important to note that the sheaf offering, the wave offering, was only the beginning of the festal cycle, which would come to its conclusion when the full harvest of wheat was complete. And then a sheaf of first fruits would not be offered, but rather those first fruits would be baked into a loaf of bread and then offered before the Lord as the Todah offering that would remain forever, the Thanksgiving or Eucharistic sacrifice. No longer only of the first fruits, but now the offering which represents the entire harvest. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay? And I'm going to start with verse 12, but I'm going to skip a few things. St. Paul's doing an apologetic, okay? And so this is what he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start with verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify of God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all men most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, my brothers and sisters, St. Paul knew that Jesus chose to rise from the dead, specifically on the feast of the first fruits, to show that he was the fulfillment of the old law and the beginning of the harvest of all men from the dead. Jesus is indeed the first fruits, but not of dead barley, but he is the Eucharistic offering, the Todah offering of the Son of God. Jesus, the first fruits of the new law. And thus, in all four accounts of the resurrection, that come to us from the gospel, the authors in all four of them, though they may vary in all sorts of details, specifically mentioned that the Sabbath was over. Passover was over. And that the resurrection happened at dawn. At the earliest possible moment, the beginning of the new day of creation. The fathers of the church point out that in the account of the creation narrative of Genesis, there was no end to the Sabbath day. If you go back and read in Genesis, not now, there is no setting of the sun on the Sabbath day and a beginning of a new day. Therefore, as the fathers tell us, embracing the old Sabbath, that day on which Adam and Eve turned their back on God, Jesus entered the tomb to put death to death. Now the Sabbath is complete. And now a new day has arisen, a new day, a new light has shone upon the world. A Eucharistic offering has shone forth 
from the tomb. My brothers and sisters, the first two images that are given to us, details about the resurrection moment that are given to us, is first of all, that, uh, that it happened in a tomb. I'm sorry, in a garden. And I'm going to share with you very quickly. I'll probably come back to this next week. St. Ephraim's hymns on the crucifixion. He says this, Christ's tomb and the garden are symbols of Eden, where Adam died a hidden death. For he had fled and hidden himself among the trees as though he entered a tomb and been covered over. The living one once entombed is now arisen in the garden and raised up that Adam who had fallen in the garden. From the tomb does Christ bring Adam in glory into the marriage feast of the garden of paradise. Turn your Bibles very quickly to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll bring this study to an end. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after, notice he says it. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and he sat upon it. I'll finish with a quotation from St. Peter Chrysologus. He says this, an angel descended and rolled back the stone. He did not roll back the stone to provide a way of escape for the Lord, but to show the world that the Lord had already risen. He rolled back the stone to help his fellow servants believe, not to help the Lord rise from the dead. He rolled back the stone for the sake of faith because it had been rolled over the tomb for the sake of unbelief. He rolled back the stone so that he who took death captive might hold the title of life. Pray, brothers, that the angel would descend now and roll away all the hardness of our hearts and open up our closed senses and declare to our minds that Christ has risen. For just as the heart in which Christ lives and reigns is heaven, so also the heart in which Christ remains dead and buried is a grave. May it be believed that just as he died, so was he transformed. Christ the man suffered, died, and was buried. As God he lives, reigns, and is and will be forever. To Christ our God, who is risen from the dead, be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Don't go, don't go anywhere for a second, because we're going to sing together. This is an old Negro spiritual. This is one of Father Hezekiah's favorites. I mean, these people were so filled with faith and, and so beautiful that, you know, we got to be willing. And, and here's another thing about this, guys. When as Catholics, we oftentimes think, oh, we're going to sing. Oh, we have to do church singing stuff. You know, we got an entire patrimony of cultural singing and cultural dancing and cultural eating and cultural drinking. And we got to get all that back. It's been ripped off. And I don't want the people that robbed us to get it. Got to get it back. But this is one of those ones that comes to us from our brothers and sisters uh, who, who, who lived a, a, a difficult life in the times of the slave trades, and, uh, and yet they remain faithful to Christ. I got my wife, Linda, and, and mom, come out here, you're going to join us too. My wife, Linda, and Luciano, you got to get right behind Mariana, right over here. You guys got to sing with us, okay? You can't sing. You got to sing.
<laughs> you just gotta let it out because it's the time of the resurrection. You can't walk, you gotta dance. You can't just talk, you gotta sing. You know? All right, here we go. Come on. I know it, know it, indeed, I know it, brother, I know it, woo, them bones gonna rise again, the Lord, he thought he'd make a man, them bones gonna rise again, so he made Adam according to a plan, them bones gonna rise again, I know it, know it, indeed, I know it, brother, I know it, woo, them bones gonna rise again. Thought he'd make a woman too. Them bones gonna rise again. The Lord didn't know just what to do. <laughs> Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed I know it, brother. I know it, woo! Them bones gonna rise again. Took a rib from Adam's side. Them bones gonna rise again. For to make Miss Eve his bride. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed. I know it, brother. I know it, woo. Them bones gonna rise again. Put him in a garden wide and fair. Them bones gonna rise again. Told him to eat what they found there. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed, I know it, brother, I know it, woo, them bones gonna rise again. Peaches, pears, plums, and such, them bones gonna rise again. But the apple tree, you better not touch, them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed, I know it, brother, I know it, woo. Them bones gonna rise again. One day Miss Eve was walking around. Them bones gonna rise again. And spied that tree all loaded down. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed. I know it, brother. I know it, woo. Them bones gonna rise again. Serpent crawling around that trunk. Them bones gonna rise again. At Miss Eve, his eye, he wunk. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed. I know it, brother. I know it, woo! Them bones gonna rise again. Eve, she just took a little pull. Them bones gonna rise again. And then she filled her fig leaf full. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed, I know it, brother, I know it, woo, them bones gonna rise again. Adam, he just took a little bite, them bones gonna rise again, said, um, um, one, that sure am nice, them bones gonna rise again, I know it, know it, indeed, I know it, brother, I know it, woo. Them bones gonna rise again. One day the Lord was walking around. Them bones gonna rise again. And spied them fields all over the ground. <laughs> them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed. I know it, brother. I know it, woo. Them bones gonna rise again. The Lord cried out in his mighty voice. Them bones gonna rise again. That shook the heavens to the joists. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it, indeed. I know it, brother. I 
of Adam, where art thou? Them bones gonna rise again. Here I Lord, eyes are coming now. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it in me. I know it, brother. I know it. Woo! Them bones gonna rise again. Adam, Adam, did you eat these? Them bones gonna rise again. No, mass Lord, I expect it was Eve. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it in me. I know it, brother. I know it. Woo! Them bones gonna rise again. Then the Lord rose up in his mighty wrath. Them bones gonna rise again. Said, y'all just beat it on down the path. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it in me, I know it, brother, I know it, woo, them bones gonna rise again. Put an angel at the door, them bones gonna rise again. Said, y'all don't come around here no more, them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it in me, I know it, brother, I know it, woo. Them bones gonna rise again. Eve took the needle and Adam took the plow. Them bones gonna rise again. And that's why we're all working now. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it indeed. I know it, brother. I know it. Woo! Them bones gonna rise again. To this tale, there ain't no more. Them bones gonna rise again. Eve got the apple and Adam got the core. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it in me. I know it, brother. I know it. Them bones gonna rise again. I know it, know it in me. I know it, brother. I know it. Them bones gonna rise again. Thank you guys for participating and singing with us. We're just going to kind of close in prayer, Linda. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Christ is risen from the dead. Happy uh, questions about the Bible study or about living.
When was the church founded? Joey, what do you think? Give it to me. Lay, us, lay it on us. The resurrection. At the resurrection. Was that you, Joey? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I didn't see your lips move. Um, so at the resurrection. Okay, that's one. That's one possible moment, right? When's another possible moment? Um, Michelle, Michelle, what do you think? Come on, take yourself off and mute. When do you think? I mean, there's. I'm thinking the, when the Holy Spirit came. Pentecost. Okay, that's another possibility. Yeah, Catherine. Uh, the fathers of the church say at the beginning. That oh, okay. So some people would say the side of Christ when the blood and water flowed forth, right? When he, in Matthew chapter 16, thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, but, but this, is, this, is a, this is not, these are all wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. So sorry, Michelle. Sorry, at the, sorry, commission? Yeah. At the Great Commission? When he commissioned at the, great, at the Great Commission? Good. Wrong. Yeah. Any other wrong ideas that want to throw out there? <laughs> Robert, Peggy, anybody else want to get it wrong? No, no. So Catherine's been doing her study. So here's the thing, guys. You, we, this is a great question because, um, and it has everything to do with our subject matter, because you have to understand that the work of Jesus is not a band-aid on a fallen world. It's not that the devil outdid God, and therefore Jesus kind of comes and like fixes it up, which is what I think most people, we would never say that, right? But our concept, I think, very much looks like that. I call it the plastic church. It's kind of like the made-up church. So we got, we've got, we've got, Jesus comes, and he's like, hmm, I don't know. This whole thing's all messed up, right? So I'm going to invent bishops and priests, and then I'm going to invent the seven sacraments and baptism, and then make people go to church every Sunday to receive Holy Communion in order to go to heaven, Right? And then, and so we got the sacramental system invented by Jesus. We got the bishops and priests invented by Jesus. And this is now the way it's supposed to go, right? But this is a complete error. And it's an error that is so bad because, because it, 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 it misunderstands what the church is. See, what Christ did was save us, right? He's the savior of the world. But to say that he saves you means he has to save you from something, and save you for something. And what did he save us from? Death. He saved us from death, which is the result of the fall. And in order to save us from that, he didn't just put a Band-Aid over the top of it. He actually fixed the problem and returned us to where we were supposed to be. The church is nothing less than paradise, which is why Jesus took our human nature and willingly exited the holy city, which the Jews believed to be, and I actually believe it to be too, the original location of the Garden of Eden, and went to that place which was called Golgotha, translated the skull, and the skull is Adam's skull. Look at your rosary right now. If you've got a crucifix on your wall, and you'll see, if you've got one that's kind of detailed, you'll see underneath the cross a skull there. That skull is Adam's skull, and you can still go to Jerusalem today, and you can go up to Golgotha, to the place of the cross, and then you can drop a line directly down where all the cracks on the earthquake happened. The earthquake happened, and it opened up crevices down into what is the traditional location of the tomb of Adam. So that literally the blood of Christ would drain upon the dead skull of the dead Adam and bring him back to life. Okay. So he went out of this holy city and went to the place that Adam died because the tradition is that Adam remained at the gate of paradise, weeping, 
saying, what have I done? By one transgression of the law, I've lost everything. And he wept there. And it was there that he died. And it was there that he was buried. Okay. And, uh, and, and so um, uh, the, 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 the point of all of this is that Jesus has come to give us back that which we lost. So he went to the tree of the cross intentionally. And placing himself upon the cross, he says to us, come, take, eat, and you will live forever. Giving us back access to the tree of life from which Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise. I ask people this, why were Adam and Eve cast out of paradise? Well, because they were disobedient. No, this is not the case. It's not what the Bible says. Open your Bibles. Chapter 3, real quick, come on. Genesis chapter 3, real quick. Verse 22. No, no, I'm going to come down for a second time to verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. He drove him out of the man at the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed the cherub into oh, I'm sorry. I went too far. I skipped it. We have to go back up to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore... He was cast out of paradise. St. Ephraim says, why would God not want him to eat and live forever? And he answers his own question. He says very simply, because if Adam had eaten, Adam had even eaten in the fallen state, they would have lived forever as though buried alive, separated from God. And so in his mercy, he cast him forth from paradise, separating him from the tree of life, that one day he might bring us back in, that we might once again receive the gift of the tree of life. And eat and live forever, which is why John, in his the end of the book of Revelation, sees the end of, 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 this, cre- of, the, of this order of things and speaks of a new creation and the tree of life planted again for the healing of the nations. When you receive the Eucharist, you receive the gift of the tree of life, for you have entered back in through your baptism into paradise itself. Not a band-aid. The church is the original plan of God. And not only that, and I take you one step further, it is the original plan of God because the church is not simply a created thing. It is eternal. And it is eternal because the church is the communion of the Trinity. It is the original assembly. And in that assembly, we are made in his image and likeness. Okay? That's beautiful. Other questions coming in, Melanie? Yeah, I think we have one good last one. Good. Yeah. From um, it's an, another anonymous attendee who is saying, how do I deal with my confirmation being delayed? Why shouldn't I fast and be sparing in everything for as much time as I have not yet received this grace so as to be hungrier for it? And presumably his confirmation is delayed because of um, the lockdown. Right, right. Um, I'm not going to give any answer to that. That has to be your pastor. So your pastor okay. has to speak to that. Your pastor is given to you by God to pastor you, to shepherd you. And, and, and we need to, you know, we have this idea that we need to find a, some spiritual father out there, a spiritual director and things like that. Your pastor is your spiritual director. He's your spiritual father. And he's the mm-hmm. one that should be guiding your spiritual life. Okay. So, and, and you can be, you can be assured he's going to make the right decisions for you and, and guide you along the path because he's ordained by God for that purpose. Yes, and insofar as, as, as he is celebrating Easter, can, yeah. he, can he enter into the celebration of, of the season? And I certainly, okay, on that point, I certainly would. I'll tell you why. Because the original fast of Lent was not 40 days. It was a couple of days before 
before Pascha, before the person was, was baptized. A few days, it grew into a week, and then it grew into 40 days. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. That's a good organic develop. Nevertheless, we prepare every Sunday for the resurrection. This is why we keep a fast in preparation for receiving Holy Communion. Right? We don't get have the McDonald's hamburger walk into mass with the thing hanging off our mustache and uh, and be like, I made it in time. I've got, I, I, it's one hour, I'm pretty sure, before I actually do receive. If that's what you're doing, like, for God's sake, this is why Jesus came and freed us from the curse of the law. Not so you look at your watch from an hour, so you can prepare yourself from your heart for the mysteries which are for, which are forthcoming. So I don't know. I would say enjoy the feast, celebrate the feast as best you can, and then when your time is given to you of preparation for confirmation, now you can begin. Okay, but the, again, speak with your pastor. I hope you enjoy the evening, and uh, God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.